0: For more information, please call 510 486
1: 2340. And you're listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Stone's Throw. Happy ending, nice and tidy, it's a rule I learned in school, get your money every Friday. Happy ending. in darkness from the ones who walk in light.
0: This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is April the 1st, April Fool's Day, 2014. Ah, yes. I'm the fool, a fool for art. Uh, Let's see. Today I wanted to spend even more time on women philosophers. Ah, what a thrill thinkers, you know, critics, Uh, I want to stick to the writers, the Victorian writers a while because most of the women uh, who write have something to say, that is, uh, women seem to write for more than money, now the money helps, of course, bloody hell, as uh, uh, Emma Thompson, I remember, She was talking about Jane Austen. She'd written a screenplay for uh, Jane Austen's book, Sense and Sensibility. And she was getting an Oscar. And she said she wanted to go to Jane Austen's grave and tell her what the grosses were in Uganda. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Money, money, money. Uh, Anyway, some said one time or another that the way you recognize a work of art, one of the ways is that it's morally stunning Uh, that that doesn't mean that it has a fig leaf over the naughty bits what it means is that the work tells us something about human suffering Uh, even about human nature how to cope with life now the brontë sisters there are 3 of them uh, are my first choice for victorian philosophers because uh they wrote in order to lead their readers to a greater understanding a uh, to call it an epiphany existential passion is what novels are for I used to talk about the novels that changed my life. But then I read them again and I found out that I I was probably completely wrong. uh, But then they changed my life a second time. My literary saints are not always the wise women. Some of them drop the ball. Uh, You know, I look for their motives, their passion. Now, just one little thing before the Brontes today. I want to read you a paragraph that I, uh, I saved. It's from the memoirs of the uh, 19th century French writer, Georges Sand. Uh, yes, you remember her. She wore uh, pants. That seems to be the only thing most people remember about her. She was the antithesis of the Bronte sisters in many ways, uh, except, of course, for her passionate defense of the feminine. Uh, The difficulty she had with her daughter Solange would make a a great novel or play. I'm trying to think how to do it. Uh, Anyway, as I said, she's nothing like the Bronte sisters in terms of her class and her religion. Uh, actually, Jortzane thought that religiosity, or the religious network, she said, was all hypocrisy. She seemed to go through the motions, but she didn't buy it. Anyway, uh, I think the Brontes could be described as Christians, although I think of Emily as a pagan. Anyway, uh, I think the Protestant ethic was more about works. Uh, I think I think that George Sands' uh, raison d'etre was this desire to change the relationships between men and women. She went right out, uh, well, her first articles uh, that anybody remembers are the ones in which she tries to argue for divorce. About all this confusion about (laughs) love. How to love and be loved, that seemed to be the goal of her life. She uh, has always been thought notorious. It was a television show called Notorious Woman, just because she had a lot of lovers. But it seemed to me that most of the time she was their mother. Uh, Chopin, particularly, she was a caretaker, a nurse. Schopenhauer, the, the philosopher, the German philosopher, Schopenhauer was always talking about uh, women are the nurses. Anyway, uh, let me just read you this one little uh, paragraph. George Sand's memoirs, History of My Life. I recommend that book. That is a trip. Uh, here's what she writes in... Uh, Is it the 1840s? Uh, 40s or 15, yes. She writes, at 16, a boy raised by a loving mother is a creature apart. He belongs in a way to no sex. His thoughts are as pure as an angel's. He does not have that puerile coquetry that unquiet curiosity, that shadowed personality which often mar a woman's early development. Ah, footnote here. She's thinking of her her daughter Solange who gave her a lot of trouble, especially when Solange went for uh, Frederick Chopin. Ah, Yes, take mother's lover. That'll do her in. Anyway, let me go on with what Sand says about uh, boys. She says, he loves his mother as a daughter does not and will not ever love her. It is the ideal of love. I find that poets and novelists have been insufficiently aware of the subject for observation. It's a source for poetry offered by this swift, Unique moment in the life of man. It is true that in these sad times, that's 1840s, the adolescent no longer exists. What we see today is the ill-kempt and ill-taught student infected by some vulgar vice. He is ugly even if naturally beautiful. He wears disgusting clothes. He doesn't look you straight in the eye. He devours filthy books in secret. And for all that, the sight of a woman frightens him. His mother's caresses make him blush, as if he felt himself unworthy. The world's most beautiful languages... The great poems of humanity are for him merely a source of indifference, revolt, disgust. His taste is depraved. It would take years for him to lose the fruits of this detestable education, to learn his own language by forgetting the Latin, which he barely knows, and the Greek that he does not know at all, to form his taste, to acquire a just idea of history, to lose that stamp of ugliness that the wretchedness and the brutalizing slavery of the school years have imprinted on his brow. And to gain the look of frankness, to carry his head high. Only then will he love his mother. (laughs) I used that paragraph as an uh, opening epigraph for a a piece called These Sad Times. Yes, Sand says, in these sad times. How is it that all the parents I know talk about the sad times and how the younger people are not, you know, not what is desired, you know, Um, what is that, Uh, in the good old days, things were better, Uh, what's that, my favorite New Yorker cartoon, man is saying to the woman, uh, things were so much better back when things were worse, (laughs) Socrates has a wonderful passage about the behavior of the youth and how obnoxious they are. Anyway, I just want to jump right in to the Brontes again because they are the ones that I guess I can say I have uh, religious faith in. Not that they didn't, you know, they ran off the rails a few times. Uh, They tended to be very... uh, Puritanical Calvin was the uh, the uh, model for these girls. Anyway, uh, my bloody microphone is falling in my lap. Uh, last time I was dusting the graves, and I'm going to go back to that. Uh, Charlotte went on living. Uh, Ten years longer than brothers and sisters, she lived until March of 1855, when she died at the age of 39. In the summer of 1854, Charlotte had married her father's curate, Arthur Bell Nichols. Irish, actually. Her subsequent pregnancy was perhaps the final drain on her consumptive constitution. Charlotte wrote to a friend that one of her reasons for marrying was to assist her father. Papa has taken no duty since we returned, she means from her wedding trip to Ireland to visit Mr. Nichols' relatives. Each time I see Mr. Nichols put on gown or surplice, I feel comforted to think that this marriage has secured Papa good aid in his old age. Oh, boy, if it isn't the husband, it's the father. Uh, He lived into his 80s. Charlotte was a dutiful angel in the house, you remember. A fruitful vine in the corner of the house. She did confess in letters that her marriage allowed her little time for herself, but she supposed this was as it should be. Uh, she spent a lot of time helping what I guess they called in those days fallen women, uh, pregnant women who were in trouble. She was, after all, the wife of a clergyman. Uh, She was certainly well aware that her earlier romantic dreams were not to be fulfilled by a a man like Arthur Nichols. His appeal seems to have been his authoritarianism, a trait that Charlotte was accustomed to. Ah, yes, the father the tyrant. Some people say yes, other people say not so much. As far as a Uh, Nichols, the husband, as far as his intellectual sympathies are concerned, she does express gratitude in a letter. Uh, It's written to a woman friend. Uh, Her husband allows her to sit alone and reflect by herself and does not intrude upon her solitude. Ah, wow. She is aware that her husband is not... Her intellectual peer, she writes, "...the destiny which Providence in his goodness and wisdom seems to offer me will not, I am aware, be generally regarded as brilliant. But I trust, I see in it, some germs of real happiness." She's obviously making the best of things... On Charlotte Bronte's wedding day, mid-nineteenth century, her father, Patrick, abruptly refused to give the bride away. A woman friend had to be pressed into service. (laughs) Patrick, the father's motives, might not have been entirely selfish. He had seen his own wife die of marital bliss. Once, in a letter... He even hints that his wife, Maria, died angry. Or that, quote, the great enemy, envying her life of holiness, often disturbed her mind in the last conflict, unquote. The rest of the letter is platitudes uh, about how much confidence he has that his wife fell asleep in Jesus He says finally that she died, quote, if not triumphantly, at least calmly, unquote. Now, who can doubt that this death took place at a time (laughs) when all six of his children were ill with scarlet fever, doubtless made a lasting impression on the soul of Patrick Bronte. Anyway, what does all this have to do with the work, with the writing? Ah, uh, the books, Jane Eyre, anyway, I think Jane Eyre, is a how-to book for women. It examines the ways in which spiritual and psychological survival are possible for a Victorian woman. You remember, legally, they were children. Uh <laughs> anyway, this Massive essay that I wrote uh, to get my master's goes on a great deal about Jane Austen and how her problems were the same but entirely different. Uh, I think I will skip to Charlotte's years as a famous, in quotes, famous writer. Another letter that I read that I don't have here with me uh, was a letter from one of her friends to another friend talking about her and it was very sad Uh, uh, the idea was that by the time Charlotte became famous, popular, uh, important person in the literary world she was too too neurasthenic too exhausted to enjoy it she went up to London to meet Thackeray and all that but uh, she'd get a headache and couldn't go to the uh, evenings, the, the uh, literary salons. Anyway, let's go back to this essay here. Charlotte's desperate lack of confidence in herself, herself as a woman, seems to have had its masochistic side. She had a nervous dread of strangers. Mrs. Gaskell, her first biographer, attributes this to her belief In her personal ugliness. Charlotte herself wrote, I notice that after a stranger has once looked at my face, he is careful not to let his eyes wander to that part of the room again. (laughs) Gosh. Anyway, Charlotte's London publisher, George Smith, wrote, uh, I must confess that my first impression of Charlotte Bronte's personal appearance was that it was interesting rather than attractive. She was very small. She had a quaint, old-fashioned look. Her head seemed too large for her body. She had fine eyes, but her face was marred by the shape of the mouth and by the complexion. There was but little feminine charm about her, and of this fact she herself was uneasily and perpetually conscious. Ah, it may seem strange that the possession of genius did not lift her above the weakness of an excessive anxiety about her appearance, but I believe she would have given all her genius and her fame to have been more beautiful. Perhaps few women ever existed more anxious to be pretty uh, and more angrily conscious of the circumstance that she was not. (laughs) Charlotte protested that even plain women could find love. She told her sisters that they were wrong to make their heroines beautiful. Uh, They told her it was impossible to make a heroine interesting on any other terms. So that's when she decided to show them a heroine plain and small as herself. That is plain Jane Eyre. Yes, a sort of adolescent fantasy I can remember. In which the homely girl wins out. Anyway, I, I guess I think that what is it I used to always say? You're either a feminist or a masochist. And I have to say that I believe Charlotte was both. Uh, her greatest tragedy, her greatest suffering, came with the death of her brother and sisters. It was the darkest period in her life. Branwell died. Uh, quote, this is from a letter. Charlotte wrote, After 20 minutes' struggle, he died on Sunday morning, September 24th, 1848. He was perfectly conscious till the last agony came on. His mind had undergone the peculiar change which frequently precedes death. A deep conviction that he rests at last rests well after his brief erring, suffering, feverish life. Conviction fills and quiets my mind now. The final separation, the spectacle of his pale corpse, gave me more acute, bitter pain than I could have imagined. Till the last hour comes, we never know how much we can forgive, pity, or regret. A near relative. All his vices were and are nothing now. We remember only his woes. Papa was acutely distressed at first, but on the whole, he has borne the event well. Uh, Even as Charlotte was writing the above letter to a friend, Emily caught cold at the funeral, Branwell's funeral. Okay. She was to die on the 19th of December. Charlotte describes her sister, uh, well, she talks about the bilious fevers and illnesses that followed after the funeral. Then uh, Charlotte grants the last wish of the dying Anne, the very youngest sister, who longs to visit the sea. Charlotte takes her to Scarborough in May of 1849. There she and Charlotte walk on the sands of the beach. Charlotte describes her sister's joy in a sunset. I think, yes, Anne was not so much, what is that, not so much in that grave that was the parsonage. She, she was buried there by the sea, and I think, mm-hmm, I think that was the best symbolically for her, because, because she so loved the sea, which she had hardly seen. She died without a murmur. She only admonished Charlotte to take courage, Uh uh-huh, I guess, I guess, uh, it's funny, I have a couple of pages here on the subject of Anne Bronte's early love for one of the curates, (laughs) they, they made fun of him, they, they, uh, teased him, what was it they called him? Let's see, he was William... William Wykert, they called him. Willy Silly or something. I can't remember right now. Uh, I think Anne has been described as the most religious of the sisters. Uh, Charlotte writes of her youngest sister, Anne, that she, quote, wept at the foot of some secret Sinai. She... uh, Yes, she seems to have had a predisposition for religious morbidity. I think of hers and Branwell's notebooks all covered with little death angels. Anne was only eight months old when her mother died. She slept in her Aunt Branwell's room as a child. Yes, I think that's what makes her so different. Uh Aunt Branwell was her mother's unmarried elder sister and a staunch Methodist. Okay. (laughs) Perhaps her solicitude for others and her ability to bear her life as a governess with more patience. Uh, Well, Emily and Charlotte couldn't stand it. Uh, I think this early contact with her aunt is responsible for this. Definitely a masochist. I love Anne's books. They are the sort of books that... Uh, should be handed out at AA. (laughs) It's all about how to deal with an alcoholic husband, also a brutal husband. Uh, Little Anne had a lisp as the baby in the family. She is described by a friend as, quote, quite different in appearance from the others. She was her aunt's favorite. Her hair was a very pretty light brown. It fell... On her neck. In little graceful curls. She had a lovely. She had lovely violet blue eyes. Fine penciled eyebrows. And a clear. Almost transparent complexion. Yes. Uh, Now let's see. There's so many things here that I wanted to tell you about. Before I leave the Brontes. And it's. Just so hard to avoid all the awful stuff. Uh, there's this wonderful, wonderful poem that uh Emily Bronte wrote in which she uh she pulls out her her sword and condemns men. She says uh, vain are the thousand creeds that move men's hearts uh utterly vain, worthless as withered weeds. (laughs) It goes on like that. Uh, I think that uh, this addicted brother was, what is it, uh, not just the model, but the motive in some of these books. Uh, His addiction was finally, in the end, to opium. Uh, I think... I think his problem was that his sisters were geniuses and he went off to London and he thought he would become uh, a great man. He would become famous and he fell apart and he couldn't do it. He was obviously too petted and too too much coddled at home. Uh, I think uh, even his father wasn't able to get him to uh, stand on his own two feet. Poor Patrick. Anyway. I guess I'd like to say that the Bronte sisters, all three of them in their separate ways, are my fundamental touchstones for women who imagine that we can transcend our lives through art. Under the most appalling difficulties, these women strove relentlessly to create order out of chaos. What is special about them, of course, is that they pulled it off. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air next Tuesday at the same time. Until then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can.
1: Happy endings are the root so divine